Good afternoon. It's 3 o'clock here at 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 FM, FCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. What time is it? Time is about this word, this notion, security. I see this word, hear this word, feel this word everywhere. Security check, security watch, security clearance, security alert. Why has all this focus on security made me feel so much more insecure? What does anyone mean when they speak of security? Why are we suddenly a nation and a people who strive for security above all else? In fact, security is essentially elusive impossible we all die we all get sick we all get old people leave us people surprise us people change us nothing is secure and this is the good news but only if you are not seeking security as the point of your life when security is paramount you can't travel very far or venture too far outside a certain circle you can't allow too many conflicting ideas into your mind at one time as they might confuse you or challenge you You can't open yourself to new experiences, new people, and new ways of doing things. They might take you off track. You can't not know who you are. It's more secure to cling to hard matter identity. So you become a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew. You're an Indian or an Egyptian or an Italian or an American. You're a heterosexual or a homosexual or you never have sex, or at least that's what you say when you identify yourself. You become part of an us. In order to be secure, you must defend against them. You cling to your land because it's your secure place. You must fight anyone who encroaches on it. You become your nation. You become your religion. You become whatever it is that will freeze you, numb you, protect you from change or doubt. But all this does is shut down your mind. In reality, you are not a drop safer. A meteor could still fall from the sky. A tsunami could rise up next to your beach house. Someone could fly a plane through your building. All this striving for security has, in fact, made you much more insecure because now you have to watch out all the time. There are people not like you, people you now call enemies. You have places you cannot go, thoughts you cannot think, worlds you can no longer inhabit. So you spend your days fighting things off, defending your territory, becoming more entrenched in your narrow thinking. Of course, you can no longer feel what another person feels because that might shatter your heart, contradict your stereotype, destroy the whole structure. It gets easier to hurt people because you do not feel what's inside them. It gets easier to lock them up, force them to be naked, humiliate them, occupy them, invade them, kill them because they do not exist. They are merely obstacles to your security. How did we as Americans come to be completely obsessed with our individual security and comfort above all else? What do we think we mean when we talk about security and what do we really mean? Whose security are we talking about? Is it possible to live surrendering to the reality of insecurity, embracing it, allowing it to open us and transform us and be our teacher? 
The voice of Eve Ensler reading from her latest book, Insecure at Last, released late last year. In this book, Eve Ensler draws on personal experiences and candid interviews with women from all over the world, including Afghanistan, prisons from upstate New York, and survivors at the Superdome after Katrina, giving us unforgettable snapshots that chronicle a post-9-11 existence in which the hyped obsession with safety and security have undermined our humanity. Welcome to Open Book, Friday's edition of Cover to Cover. I'm Amelia Gonzalez. Stay with us in this conversation with internationally acclaimed playwright Eve Ensler, whose work for the stage include Floating Rhoda and the Glue Man, Lemonade, Necessary Targets, The Vagina Monologues, and The Good Body. Eve Ensler is the founder and artistic director of V-Day, the global movement to end violence against women and girls that was inspired by The Vagina Monologues. She was here late last year where she started by sharing why it was important for her to embrace insecurity in a security-obsessed world. I, you know, I'm 53. I don't think I've ever felt more insecure uh, in my entire life. And Oddly, I've never been happier. You know, I'm alone. I'm nomadic. I travel all the time. I spend a lot of time in places that people would find terrifying war zones and post-disaster sites and sitting with women all around the world. And yet, um, I think what's happened for me over these years, particularly since V-Day, the global movement to end violence against women took off, is if I believed in anything when I was younger, having come from a very violent family, I think that I thought there was going to come a point where I would go into the world and I would find logic and I would find security and life would make sense at some point. Finally, I would come to understand why people do violence, why people are cruel. And, and what's happened to me going to 40 countries or about 40 countries in the last 10 years is that it, it's become very clear that life is about being insecure. That, you know, there are some fundamentals we can hope for like being fed, like having a place to live, like being educated, like, you know, um, having health care. But besides that, the world and life itself is entirely and completely insecure. Everything changes every minute. Things surprise us all the time. And I think if your dream is to be secure and if you are driven and obsessed as we are in this country now to seek security above all else your life becomes very narrow very isolated you begin to shut down borders both physically and internationally and psychologically and emotionally you get tinier and tinier and more terrified and more terrified and if your dream is freedom for example or connection or human compassion or to be caring or to be loving your world gets bigger and more complicated and more unusual and more mystical and more fantastic and I think what this book is really a call for particularly in this country is that we let this country be a country which was about give me liberty or give me death where we we take back our adventuresome outrageous exploratory way of life way of being as opposed to this terrified fundamentalist, tyrannical, violent nation we've become. You mentioned V-Day, and for those that might not know exactly what it is, could you describe what V-Day is and its history? When I did the vagina monologues at the beginning, I went to all these wonderful places, with kind of very obscure places. They were, were re really random. It was just brave people bringing me to their communities. And at the end of every show, women would line up to talk to me. And at first I thought, great, they'll be talking about their sex lives and orgasms and wonder... 
And in fact, 90% of the women were lining up to tell me how they'd been raped or battered or gang raped or incested or mutilated. And I decided um, I was going to stop doing the play if I didn't do something on behalf of the women who were talking to me. So in 97, I got a group of women together in New York and I said, how could we use the vagina monologues to end violence, not contain it or manage it, but end it, stop it. And we came up with this idea called V-Day, which was Valentine's Day, Vagina Day, Victory Over Violence Day. And we did one performance in New York with all these great actors from Whoopi Goldberg to Susan Sarandon to Rosie Perez to Lily Tomlin to Margaret Cho. Um, and we launched this movement in that one extraordinary evening. And that was nine years ago. And over nine years, it's spread to 91 countries. Um, it's been translated into 45 languages. Last year, there were 2,700 events in 1,100 places from, you know, from Africa to the Middle East to South America to Asia to all over the United States and Canada. And what's happened is women across the world are doing productions of the vagina monologues at a certain time every year to raise money for grassroots groups which work to stop rape and incest and genital mutilation and sex trafficking and domestic battery and it's thrilling you know we've raised 40 million dollars in nine years and that's all happened through grassroots efforts and we built a movement where women are empowered and have voice and have strength and are beginning to love their bodies and beginning to understand that they have a right to be safe and free. Eve, you write about some of the projects that women have started as a result of V-Day. Could you share some of those stories with us? Yes. I mean, I think one of the great things about uh, the journey I've had over these, these years is that I've met women all around the world from Afghanistan to Juarez to Kosovo to Bosnia and the list goes on who are living in theoretically very, very terrible situations, really insecure situations. And what they have managed to do is take their suffering and transform that suffering, grieve that suffering, and then they devote their lives to making sure it doesn't happen to other people. And we call these people vagina warriors in V-World. When you provide people with resources... When you don't intervene and tell them what to do and how they should run their lives and what their culture should be, but where you provide what you have from the West, which is resources, and you allow people to fulfill their own destinies, like Agnes in Africa, who we met, who had been generally mutilated when she was a girl, and she had spent her life devoted to stopping this practice. And when we asked her what we could give her, she said, well, give me a Jeep and I can drive around a lot faster and educate more people. We gave her a Jeep. And in a year, she reached 4,500 girls, as opposed to the 1,500 she already reached. And then we gave her money to build a house. And that house is now holding 50 girls at a time. They won't be cut. They won't be forced into marriage. They'll go to school. But I didn't tell Agnes what to do. Vide didn't tell Agnes what to do. Agnes knew what to do. She's a powerful, visionary woman who lives in her community. She knows what needs to be done. She just needed the resources to do it. Well, those resources have made her a leader in her community. They have given her voice. What, what she's doing is now spreading throughout Africa. And guess what? She loves V-Day. She's connected to us. She speaks well of us. We're in partnership. We're in alliance. We're doing this together. There's a particular woman in Juarez named Esther Chavez who was this accountant. She was 70 years old and um, she was retiring in Mexico City and she went to Juarez just to visit her aunt and she heard what was going on with the women in the Maquilazoras who were being disappeared and murdered and raped. And she was so devastated by this that she really came out of retirement and 
gave up her life and devoted it to stopping violence towards the women in Juarez. And there's a, actually a section in my book which kind of talks about I was there at one point, I've been in Juarez quite a few times, and in Mexico City, the Vagina Monologues has raised a lot of money for the efforts of Casa Amiga, which is a stairs um, center, but also a lot of other efforts of women in, in Juarez. And I went down at one point, I was interviewing all these women, and this very bizarre thing happened where all these women um, were identifying the girl who had disappeared, and her name in all these different cases was Brenda. And it became this kind of surreal experience. And I'd like to just read this little section um, from from Juarez um, about this particular woman named Esther Luna, who was a mother of a daughter named Brenda. Esther Luna was 46. She was beautiful, humble, gentle, and intense. The first thing she showed us was the portrait of herself and her three daughters. They all looked strangely terrorized and detached. One daughter, Brenda who was five in the picture, was making a funny, twisted face. It was as if she were anticipating her future. Esther told me they used to have a normal life until the violence came to the city. Well, normal like the normal life of living with a violent, alcoholic husband. They had lots of troubles. He terrorized and abused the four children for years. Then he kicked all of them out. They had no money, nowhere to go. Esther Luna got a job as a domestic worker, but she couldn't pay the rent. Brenda Luna was 15. She suggested that her mother get a second job and let her take her job as a domestic worker. Esther Luna was reluctant but desperate. The day before Brenda was to begin the job, her mother took her to the bus stop and walked her through the not-too-complicated route to the job. Brenda left the next morning and never returned that evening. At first, Esther Luna thought she was with friends, but when the morning came and Brenda was still not there, she became worried. She got on the bus and went to the home where Brenda was supposed to have headed the day before. Her boss told Esther that her daughter had never been there. Esther Luna was panicked. Her boss brought her to the police. This began the torturous search for her daughter. Three weeks later, a body was found, and Esther Luna was summoned to the police station. Most of the body was bone, except for several places where flesh remained. On the left calf, Esther Luna was able to identify a scar where a dog had bitten her daughter when she was a child. She also was able to identify the clothing that was found next to the body. They were definitely Brenda's panties and bra. The authorities didn't believe her. They said a scar wasn't enough to identify a body. They did a DNA test. One year later, they came and told her it wasn't her daughter. Esther told them she knew it was her daughter when she was standing next to the body. There was something in my heart. I touched the body. I wasn't repulsed. I just felt this pain. They found a knife inside her body where her stomach once was. I wanted answers. I made them do another DNA test. I made them test another part of the body, another bone. Another year passed, and then they came and told me they lost the test. I demanded another test. They started to get angry with me. They said, this is not your daughter's body. Everyone knew me at the police. They told me my daughter was on the streets crazy with a man. They said terrible things. I told them I didn't care if she was with a man on the streets. I wanted her alive, no matter what she was doing. They made fun of me. I stopped going to them because I was humiliated. Then I found Casa Amiga. Esther Chavez helped me get a lawyer, and they did the first real DNA test, and it turned out that it was my daughter. It took almost five years and a half to find out it was my daughter. It took me all those years to find out what I already knew. She told me about Brenda Luna. I asked her if she had been to her grave. She told me no buses went there. She didn't have a car. It was in the desert. I told her I would take her there. 
It was the first time she was happy. The next day, we drove out into the desert. It was hot, dusty, lonely desert. We came to San Rafael, hundreds of crosses that suddenly appeared out of the miles and miles of sand. In the parking lot, they sold flowers and wreaths. Esther Luna knew exactly what she wanted for her daughter's grave, white flowers because they were pure, and a wreath with a guardian angel. My children, she says, always pray to the guardian angel that takes care of children whenever they are in trouble. The graveyard stretched out for miles. Esther Luna had a tiny piece of worn paper with directions, a series of penciled cross marks and the one with a circle around it in the name Brandita. There were thousands of poor people's graves. We narrowed it down to the Patio de Niños. We spread out a group of us searching for the grave of Brenda Luna. It was hot. There were so many graves and they all looked the same. Even now, Esther Luna could not find her daughter. Miraculously, one of us came upon Brenda's grave. Her name had been almost fully bleached off the white wooden cross. Esther Luna, this quiet, humble, introverted woman, made a beeline for the grave and without pause or ceremony threw herself face down on her daughter's desert mound. She covered Brenda Luna's body with her body. She held her daughter there like she once held her as a child. She lay there face down, her arms pulled at the sand in a swimming motion. Her hands gathered back the dirt on the grave as if she were reassembling her daughter's mutilated body. She spoke to her daughter as she lay there caressing and swimming and gathering. Those dogs, those dogs who ripped you apart, my Brenda, she sobbed, wailed, and called out to the Virgin Mary. She kissed the grave over and over. Then after quite some time, she got up and with total purpose, she ritualistically decorated the grave with flowers and wreaths as if she were dressing her daughter for her quinceanera. At times, she could actually see Esther Luna brushing her daughter's hair. She asked her seven-year-old son to collect stones to make a circle around the grave. She laid the stones like jewels. She watered the grave with her hands dipped into a bucket and carefully covered every inch of the dry grave as she were lotioning her daughter's parched skin. She said over and over, Oh, my dear daughter, you were so thirsty. Even now, in 2006, after years of rallies, ongoing struggles from local women's groups, pressure from international organizations, legal cases filed, thousands of people riding and marching in the streets, the Mexican government and the U.S. multinationals that benefit from women working at slave wages still have not moved to protect Mexican women. Esther Luna was able to find her daughter in miles of barely marked graves in a desolate desert. But the people in power in the local and national Mexican government haven't been able to find or convict one single murderer in 10 years. Poor people, particularly women, create something out of nothing over and over. With stones and a plastic bucket of water and some flowers, Esther Luna honored Brenda and made her sacred. The impoverished emptiness of her grave was transformed. The super wealthy executives who own the maquiladoras can't, in many cases, find the will or resources even to secure a simple streetlight outside the factories so women don't have to walk home in the dark. Eve Ensler, reading from her book, Insecure at Last, from the chapter, A World of Brendas, that describes the situation in Juarez, Mexico, where over 400 women have disappeared with very little done by the government. Eve, in this chapter, you show the violence against women in the absence of war, as men might define it. Can you elaborate on that? Well, you know, I think for most women in this world, and particularly poor women, 
who really have very few protections or or recourses in their lives. You know, I mean, I think so much now, uh, and so many countries are ruled by the rich elites. Um, the rich elites run for office. The rich elites control the governments. The rich elites determine policy. And they don't even know poor women. They don't even touch poor women. They don't even... Con- Remember when, when Cheney came out and he, he didn't know that AIDS was in the black community? Do you remember that right. black women were getting AIDS? It's, it's, it's the, the, the level of detachment and disassociation. It's like, it's like Mrs. Bush, Barbara Bush, going to the Superdome and saying they're living better than they've ever lived before. You know? Um, and I guess my feeling is that every day I experience um, a war on women. A war on their bodies, a war on their souls, a war on their um, brains, a war on their beings, a war on their homes, you know. And and if we were really serious about homeland security, we would secure our homes, we would secure our streets, we would secure our schools, you know. Um, I think it. I, I think it's ironic and 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 so bizarre that all this focus has has become on terrorism. You know how many. How many people die of terrorism in any given year compared to how many women are beaten and raped and destroyed uh, by violence? And it's a great diversion and it's a great distraction. And so much money, what is it, $390 billion a year goes to the defense budget. That's not including the $1.3 trillion that will go to the war in Iraq. If we took that money and we protected women, and we educated girls and boys, and we provided classes where boys got to have their feelings and got to grow up not being tyrannized by masculinity. If we took that money and we fed people, and we gave people places to live, and we we provided them with resources for health care and and stopping AIDS and, and, and stopping global warming, you know, I truly believe the fertile ground in which terrorism is bled, it would be over. Because we know by all the studies that are done that violence grows from humiliation and shame. It isn't, it isn't some kind of hatred of America that brings people to, to blow themselves up. As a matter of fact, in Robert Pape's book that he just did on suicide bombers, where he documented the lives of suicide bombers since 1980, he says in that, that it is not true what the Bush regime has told us that ninety that that terrorists are fundamentalists and they hate America. In fact, ninety percent of suicide bombers committed those acts because someone had invaded their homelands and they felt powerless and humiliated and ashamed and ha- felt they had no recourse because. Out, when you feel someone's taking over your land, taking over yourself, taking over your life, what do you do to retaliate? I know that if we reverse things and were to reach out and to say, how do we provide resources for people around the world so they don't have to live like Esther Luna? So they don't have to have a job where they're making $4 a day and they send their children off to work to support them. What if we actually reached out and created a world where those people weren't terrorized by poverty and weren't terrorized by having no support underneath them? What would happen to the rage in the world and the violence of the world? I have to believe it would be transformed. You're listening to playwright, author, and activist Eve Ensler, and we're talking about her book, Insecure at Last, on cover-to-cover open book, Amamele Gonzalez. Eve, when you talk about the complexity of the issues affecting women, specifically when you describe the situation in Croatia, would you say there's a complicity within media in general, especially as they search for that sensational story? It's a really good question. You know, I I really see it with this book. You know, you're, they say five minutes go. You know, 
Now talk about these complicated ideas. And I'm not doing that. I'm just refusing to do it. Because I think what's happened in this country is we've stopped thinking. We've stopped. We, we, we don't have any ability now to hold two opposite ideas at the same time. We don't know how to live in ambiguity. We don't know how to live in mystery. We don't know how to live and, and say this might be true and this might be true. And one of the places I saw that was indeed in, during the war in Bosnia because journalists were just going. There was actually this fax that they kept on the wall, which is get us one rape Bosnian woman, preferably gang raped, preferably English speaking. They actually received this fax. And you see how there's an agenda on the media and a story they want to tell before they've even gotten to tell the story, before they've opened themselves to whatever the story is. And they're telling that story because it serves that particular ideology of that particular radio or TV station. And what I'm really proposing, and I, I'm going to keep saying this, is that we live in complexity. We live in complexity. We live in ambiguity. We stop coming up with these facile, reductive solutions to things. The world is incredibly complex. If you just look at the issue, for example, of burqas, okay? That is such a perfect example. The West got a hold of the burqa. I mean, Western media loves to talk about what women wear anywhere. It seems to be the focus of what any discussion about women anyway. Well, it's our fault. Yeah. <laughs> and the burqa became the identified thing that got talked about at the expense of everything that was going on in women's lives. Their security, their education, their jobs, their status, their faith, their beliefs, their hearts, their souls. And that's such a perfect example to me of grab a hold of one image that becomes the soundbite, that becomes the story, that becomes the idea, that becomes the ideology, and then people think they're done with Afghan women. As opposed to really sitting with and knowing and hearing the specific complicated details, messy details of people's lives. You've been listening to a conversation with internationally acclaimed playwright, author, and activist Eve Ensler, and we've been talking about her book, Insecure at Last, here on Cover to Cover Open Book. With Erica Bridgman at the controls, I've been your host, Amelia Gonzalez. Thanks for listening. it means to be white in a country set up for the benefit of people like you and for the institutional destruction of everybody else. That's the voice of anti-racism author and activist Tim Weiss. We'll be speaking here in the Bay Area on Thursday, February 1st at 7.30 p.m. at the First Congregational Church of Oakland, located at 2501 Harrison at 27th Street. Tickets are $10 and $5 for youth 18 and under. You can buy them in advance at Brown Paper Tickets. This benefit for Speak Out is wheelchair accessible and is sponsored by the Center for Political Education, KPFA, and Speak Out. For more information, visit www.speakoutnowoneword.org or call 510-601-0182. As a KPFA listener, you know how valuable our programming is. But do you know that individual support like yours is what keeps KPFA on the air? 
I'm Lem Lem Rijo, KPFA Interim General Manager, asking you to continue your support for KPFA Radio. As you know, we accept no underwriting from corporations in exchange for advertisements. We depend on you, our community. You are our lifeblood. As we prepare to begin our winter fund drive, we ask you to pledge early online at kpfa.org. And from all of us at KPFA, thank you for your continued support and generosity. Good afternoon. It's 3:29 here at 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFC up in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. Uh, 